All right, we've been going through a series called Crave, and we've been looking at how the cravings that we have as human beings are actually things that drive us. And we've been looking at both the the unhealthy ways that we're driven as well as the healthy. We looked at intimacy, how we are all driven for this longing to be loved and to love. But how if we're not careful, that drive can be something that consumes us. It's something that's given into a selfish need uh, Instead of it being something where we sacrifice of ourselves and love, we actually consume to have. We talked about destiny, the desire we have to to do something that has value in the world and how we have to be be careful for apathy just to take root where we desire to do nothing and become lazy. And we, we looked at how we can actually change the world around us by becoming the people that God intends us to be, that we've been created in Christ for good works, that we are His workmanship. And that taking hold of this desire to actually be someone who has significance, we can actually make an impact on the lives of the people around us. And today we're going to be talking about the desire for meaning, but we're going to be looking at the area of dysfunction first, the dark side of trying to find meaning. You and I are meaning machines. Ever since you were a child, you have wanted to explore. What's the question every kid asks over and over and over again? I don't know, I'm asking you. No. <laughs> Exactly. It's why. They want to know why. You know, why is the sky blue? Why does this happen? Why does mom yell in traffic? Why Why do these things happen? It's this inquiry. And ever since we were little, we wanted to know. Language. I mean, isn't it an amazing thing that you can hear sounds and put meaning to them? And when you hear a foreign language, it, it, it seems so unusual and there's this curiosity, what are they saying? And you see, when you were two, you would figure it out. But now that you're older, it becomes more difficult. Now it's like my mind's rigid and it's like those, those are just noises. But to a child, it's like they're communicating. What are they saying? And they start putting the dots together. You know, they, they put you on a blanket when you're small and, and, you know, just stay here on the blanket, but you will not stay on that blanket. You will crawl off that blanket. You will roll off that blanket. You've got to figure a way to move. When our, our kids were small, I remember the twins, they used to do this inchworm thing where they would kind of crawl up and they'd put their head in the ground and then they'd sprawl out and they would, that's how they crawled. They kind of inchwormed their way along. You know, and they finally learn how to roll over, and it's a big deal. They rolled over. That was just the beginning. They were just getting started. Because once they started crawling, then they had to learn to stand up. And then they got to walking. Now all hell breaks loose, right? Because now they can really move, and now they're not confined. And we put them in their cribs, but they climbed out. 
And they took everything out of the closet because they had to know what was in the closet. And then walking, and then running, and then riding bicycles, and then driving cars. It just gets scarier and scarier when you're an adult. You see, but there is this desire to move forward. And we do it in every aspect of our lives, this desire to understand what's out there, to to move ourselves. What is it like? I want to know. And, And it's something that drives all of us. We are driven by these things and we start putting interpretation to the things that we see and how we interact with one another. And so we hear a word and it means something to us because we've put that language together and we start developing these things so that we can understand, we can give meaning to to these things. But one of the things that happens, one of the areas of dysfunction is we start giving meaning to meaningless things and call them superstition. And now things that really don't mean anything, we want to put meaning on them because we need meaning. And so you say, well, I hope I don't get sick, knock on wood. What does that mean? Well, you know, you knock on the wood and it means you hope you don't get sick. You put meaning on knocking on wood that isn't there. Sorry, if you're a knock on wooder, you know, I hate to break the the news to you. But we do that in so many areas where we, we want our lives to be connected to meaning that we start making up meaningful things just so that we can hold on to them. And these superstitions can show up in a lot of different ways. And sometimes they show up even in religious beliefs where we give ourselves over to things thinking that this is going to give us meaning, this is going to help us out. And when we give meaning to meaningless things, the superstition, sometimes we make actually meaningless the things that are meaningful. We lose sight of what is really important and we start putting importance on unimportant things. And then it starts affecting our lives in so many ways. And so open up with me to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And I want to ask you a question as we move forward. If you can live forever, what do you live for? If you're going to live forever, what are you going to live for? If that is your future, why? What is the meaning for you living? In Ecclesiastes, we see Solomon and 38 times the word meaningless appears in the scripture. 35 of those times are here in this book by Solomon. Now, it's a little unsettling that the person who is deemed the wisest man in the world thinks things are meaningless. But let's look at it and let's learn from it. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting at verse 1. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. 
The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who will follow them. So I thought I'd start off on a, you know, uplifting, meaningless, and it's consuming Solomon, this idea of things being meaningless. And you see, what happens is if we try to find meaning and we don't find it in the things, what we're going to try and do is develop it in some other way. If we can't find meaning in our lives, what we're going to do is give ourselves to things instead of that meaning. And sometimes we choose to do what's easy instead of what's meaningful. We do it because, well, it's easy to do and it brings me some sense of satisfaction and so I'm going to do this. How many times have you had a job that you hated? You said, I hate this job. There's an answer to that. You can get another job. But to get another job, it would require difficulty. It would require you to take more time because you have to continue working and make a living to go and pursue an education or put in applications to another job. And, and so it's a difficult thing. So a lot of people will stay where they're at because it's easier, even though they don't like where they're at. And most people who hate the job where they're at hated their last job too. And really what you find out that it's not the job that's the problem. It's actually what's going on in you. Because you don't find meaning in your work. You bring meaning to your work. And so if you want to be someone like in the fashion industry, well, you bring the meaning of that into that job. If you want to be a teacher, you bring meaning into that job. See, being a teacher doesn't have meaning unless you bring it there because we've all had teachers who shouldn't be teaching. And then we've had those who actually brought meaning to the idea of teaching. But what happens is it's easier to do nothing. And so instead of pursuing this idea and this hunger for what things mean or what will bring meaning to our lives, what we do is just give in to what is easier. And it happens at work. It happens in relationships. We become like hamsters on the wheel. 
And we just do the same thing over and over again because that's what we know how to do and that's the easiest thing to do. And it happens whether you're dating or it happens if you're married. It just can start to become routine. And to get to know someone requires conversation and vulnerability. I'm putting myself out there. I'm saying that I I like you and I'm hoping you say it back. But if you don't, it's going to be difficult. It's going to crush me. And so I'd rather not go there. Or I'd rather have a superficial relationship that's easier. And when that doesn't work and we feel hurt, well, again, it's too much work to develop a, a, a deep and intimate relationship. So I'll go to another superficial one. We're like that hamster just spinning on the wheel, going over and over and over and over and over again. And it can happen in our marriages too. You see, there's a problem, but it's going to take conversation to get past it. And sometimes conversation is difficult, especially if you have to own things. You know, she's mad at you. You know she's mad at you. You know why she's mad at you. She's got a good reason to be mad at you. And to move past, you have to enter into that conversation. I'd rather just, yeah, we're good. Right? Hey, love you, love you, love you. And underneath there is this elephant that has to be dealt with so that things can actually grow deeper. But if you don't engage in that conversation it won't take place. And the meaningful relationship that you desire is now sacrificed because of the difficulty to get there. And so just like there's apathy in our destiny, there can become a kind of apathy in trying to find meaning in the things that are important in our lives because we just don't want to go there and we'd rather do what's simple rather than get there. Same is true with parenting. Same is true with religion. You know, we we believe in God and we have a faith in God and that's it. I want my faith in God, but I don't want God to have too much influence in my life because that's going to cost me something. And I don't know what it's going to cost me and I might be afraid of what's going to cost me. And so instead of trying to develop a, a relational aspect with God that actually is meaningful, I'll just keep it on a religious basic. It's a routine that I go through, but that's, that's it. It stops there. And so one of the, the dysfunctions of meaning is we want and are satisfied with less. And we're not really satisfied. We just take it and get used to it. And so now I would rather find my meaning watching a movie than living a life that could be written about. See, I'll never do that. I'll just watch it. And there's no reason we can't live lives that should be written about, should be produced but we choose instead to have someone else give it to us. Again, we get lazy in these things. And you see, we should be able to learn from Solomon. 
Solomon is writing these things about meaningless and all the things that he feels, how he's, he's seen just this emptiness and this cycle that goes on. But he's telling us something, and if we can learn from him, then we don't have to go through the things that he went through. And so he goes on in chapter 2, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and he talks about pleasure. He says, I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. And so here he is saying, I, you know, if you're only going to live so long, then might as well enjoy it, right? Might as well, it makes sense. Yeah, if you've only got so many years, the few days that you have, then I, I'm going to try and find pleasure. And you see, something is driving Solomon. Solomon is wanting to know what is going to quench this desire in my soul to find meaning. I've, I've looked and I've had understanding and knowledge and it's driving me, but I'm not seeing what is connected to this meaning. I'll try pleasure. Maybe if I can satisfy my, my pleasure, my life with pleasure, keeping in mind this is what I'm trying to do is satisfy the desire I have. But he finds it's not satisfying. And, and you see, it's difficult because sometimes we don't distinguish that you were designed for pleasure. You were created to enjoy and all our senses, whether it's through the skin and touch and a caress and warmth that you enjoy. You know, nothing like going in to a warm place when it's coming in out of the cold and it's just like, oh, man, this is great. It pleases your soul. There's the visual pleasure. You can see Something beautiful. You can see a sunset. You can see flowers, a landscape. You can see that guy, that girl. You think, wow, she's beautiful. And she's looking at the other guy and thinking, he's beautiful. And now you've got a trouble. We hear and we make music that moves us, that gives us pleasure that brings us to tears, that brings smiles on our face, that makes our feet want to move. Aroma. We have the ability to smell things from a flower to cookies. And this ability to enjoy through fragrance, through taste, you can enjoy chocolate. It brings you pleasure. You can enjoy coffee. It brings you pleasure, the taste. And so that wasn't good enough. Some have mocha lattes. We'll combine the chocolate and the coffee, and it's of God. See, we were meant to enjoy the pleasure, but, but here's the problem. When we make the pleasure 
our focus, we lose the meaning. When the pleasure becomes what we want above the meaning of what we need, then it becomes addiction. And so what was meant to drive you to a place of meaningfulness and healthiness now is overtaken by just the pleasure itself. And so in the physical relationship, sex, it's a pleasure. I think a lot of times, especially in the religious community, the parents say, you know, you watch out for sex, it's dangerous. And the kids have sex and they go, wow, that was actually pretty good. You should try it. (laughs) But you see, the pleasure of sex, if that becomes the focus, it takes away the meaning of intimacy, which that relationship can actually lead you to. And so you you satisfy on the pleasure and you lose the meaning. And it can happen with every area of our lives. You know, you can have a drink and enjoy a time with friends. The Psalms tell us that wine gladdens the heart. It was meant to do that. But when the wine becomes the focus and pretty soon the drinking becomes the object it very easily can overtake the idea of actually having an enjoyment of life because you become drunk. Or other means of intoxication. They start to become the focus. They start to dominate what is supposed to lead you to something that's meaningful. And what we find is, even as Solomon was thinking, man, I'm going to find pleasure and that's going to satisfy me. No, the pleasure you were created for is only there to help you get to the place that you needed to be. It's not the meaning itself. And that's what Solomon found out. It wasn't what he wanted. And when the pleasure becomes the goal, we make meaningless the things that are meaningful. And that's tragic. Because intimacy is a meaningful thing. And when you make it meaningless by negating it to just something sexual, you've brought tragedy. And so many times in our pursuit to satisfy the craving we have for something meaningful, we end up focusing on far less and not more. And that's where Solomon is at in this place. You know, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, Paul says, But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. And that's not just for widows. Anyone who lives for pleasure is dead while they live. Why? Because there is not meaning just in the pleasure. That became the focus that took you off course to what the meaning really is behind the situation. You see, the person person who lives for pleasure is usually the person who enjoys life the least. Have you noticed that? The person who's just trying to consume and, and make themselves 
feel that pleasure all the time are never satisfied. In fact, the Proverbs tell us that hell and destruction are never satisfied, neither are the eyes of man. Or hell and destruction are not full, neither are the eyes of man satisfied. And so there is this consuming mentality and you're wanting, you're wanting, but you're not living a life that's alive. And it's amazing that the people who pursue this avenue of pleasure are the ones who are least alive. Because what they're trying to do is be alive, but then you still see the consequences. You, you, you've stopped short of the intention that's driving you, the crave, to find meaning. You've stopped short. You, you, you enjoyed a part of it, but you missed the point of it. And that happened to Solomon and it happens to so many people. And if we could learn from Solomon so that we don't follow in his steps. He goes on in verse 4, chapter 2. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I brought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds of flock than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The delights of man's heart, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor. And this was the reward of all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. And so we see that he's trying success. If I can just accomplish a lot, I'll acquire money, I'll do all these things. And the success again became the focus. He was driven to want to find meaning for his life. I'll try pleasure, I'll try knowledge, I'll try success. Accumulating as much as I can for myself. But still he found it meaningless. Still it's driving him, but now we see it's actually driving him mad. And in chapter 2, Verse 4, we, we start to see that struggle that takes place, that his soul is sick, pleasure and success doesn't heal it. He starts to go on, well, I tried this, I tried this, but it's not getting any better. And I wonder how many Vincent Van Goghs, how many Ernest Hemingways, how many Kurt Cobains, how many Robin Williams do we have to see people who are magnificent in what they do take their lives in despair? Because the success does not bring health to the soul. And where there might be sickness in the mind and why there might be other issues that they're dealing with, those issues will never be satisfied in the success. They will never be satisfied in how much they gain, how much they can acquire from themselves. But we don't learn the lessons from those who have achieved so much and still found themselves 
driven crazy because they can't satisfy meaning in their lives. And in our struggle, I think, to take control of our lives, we find in the end that we really don't have control at all. You know, people who are always wanting to to be in control, they're in for a rude awakening. We, we just don't see things clearly. I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to, I'm going to be the master of my destiny. I'm going to make sure I have all these things. And you don't realize that you're susceptible to sickness like everyone else. And this desire to take control and find meaning in your ability to handle things, you find out that you really don't have control. And so we might want... God to be in control of the universe or to be in control of our circumstances to a certain degree, but we really don't want him to be in control of all of our decisions. I want him to be in control of things I have no control of, but I don't want to take responsibility for the things I have control of. And what it's doing again is driving us. And he goes on, Verse 17, chapter 2. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving which, with which they labor under the sun. All their days their work is grief and pain. Even at night their minds do not rest. This too is meaningless. And you see, this is the dark side of meaning. This is the dark side of this crave to find meaning is we start to lose our way. And you see, if we don't connect to the meaning of our lives, our lives lose their meaning. And this is exactly where Solomon was at. He was at a place where he did not connect to the meaning of his life and he was trying to attach meaning to the stuff. Meaning to the pleasure. Meaning to the knowledge. And he was missing the meaning of his life altogether. Because life is messy. And it's difficult to understand. Sometimes it's a beautiful mess. You might have a Monday that's just incredible. It's magnificent. It's like the best day of your life. Then you have a Tuesday. And you get news that just is devastating. It's the worst day of your life. And then Wednesday, you have to try and put... Monday and Tuesday together and understand what's the point of it all. 
And if we don't understand that there's something here that is important to us, then we will lose our understanding of what God has intended for us to have. You see, we have to know what it means. We have to know what it's about. We are driven. And if it's too much work, sometimes we give up or we put our focus on the wrong things. But we are driven to understand the meaning not only of life, but of us. And so this desire, why is it there? I think Solomon actually alludes to it in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, He, God, has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity into the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God has put eternity into our hearts. This thing that's driving us to want to know, it's an amazing thing. It's amazing what we've accomplished because of this wanting to know the meaning of things. We are haunted when we don't know. And it doesn't matter if you're a scientist, an atheist, or a person of faith, there is this drive to know because God has put something in us that sees more than what we visibly can see, that understands there's something behind it. And so we want to know what is behind this. It's amazing to me that people who who talk about science and saying, well, you only can know what's empirically proven. That's all you can know. But you see... That's not what drives scientists to try and find a cure for cancer. Because they don't empirically know that yet, but they want to know that. And so they have to imagine what will happen if I do this or introduce this. What will it produce? What is driving them to want to know? How is it that we understand what eternity is? when we are finite, when we are limited. You know, it's as if all we knew was darkness. How would we even know there was light? You wouldn't unless some other means revealed it to you. And there's the point. God has put eternity in the hearts of men to draw them to understand that our meaning isn't found in us or in what we can do or partake, but it is found in the one who has made us and given us understanding that is beyond us. And maybe an infinite God can reveal himself to finite people through this area of our imagination and understanding of things that are not yet here. And this is kind of the playground where God meets humanity and he reveals to us things that we don't just see. 
And he brings meaning to things that in any other arena would be meaningless. And when we connect to the author of life, we find the meaning of life. And it's something that drives us and is meant to. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be open. Which one of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? How much more will God give to those who ask him? See, something has happened where along the way we, we've been maybe told in, in our Christian faith that you just have to believe and you've you got to stop asking the questions. Just take it on blind faith. The Bible says it, you believe it, that settles it. And then something inside your child says, but why does the Bible say it? Uh, you don't need to know why. The Bible says that that settles it. You get it? And not realizing that the treasure of why the Bible says it is found in the question of why. Why would God not want me to just have sex with anybody? Isn't there something there that's of value? And when you start searching that, you find a treasure in there that is meaningful. Why does God say this? Why does the Bible tell us that? What is the reason behind these things? And for so long we've been afraid of the question, but God is the one driving the question. And Jesus tells you and he tells me, ask, seek, knock. Because that's how you were created. That's what you were created for. And it is like a magnet pulling you to the heart of God because you will not find meaning in this stuff. You will not find meaning in what you will know. You will not find meaning in the pleasure that you can enjoy. It will find meaning only in the one who's created us to be able to know, to be able to obtain, to be able to enjoy. And it drives us to Him. So don't stop short. Realize that your crave for these things, your craving for these things, is given to take you all the way to the one who's put the cravings in you. And that's to the Creator Himself. And as you start asking the questions, why? you will start finding in the face of those answers, this is meaningless, this is meaningless, this 
is meaningful. And the people who have healthy lives are the people who find meaning in their lives. And the people who find the meaning for their life are the ones who have a reason for living. And so we need to understand that this desire that you have, that your friends have, is God-given. And it's important. The problem is, we try and find the meaning in the wrong things. We make up superstitions. We give in to addictions. We become discouraged because we had the wrong goal in mind. So let's allow these cravings to drive us to what we really crave. Next week we're going to talk about the healthy reasons. So I don't want to leave you all bummed out here today, okay? I know it's kind of like... But let's close in prayer. Jesus, you told us that we are to seek first the kingdom of heaven and your righteousness and then all these things what we need will be added to us. Lord, you've told us that if we will delight in you, that you would be able to satisfy the desires of our heart. Father, may we not fall short in craving things less than you. May the desire for meaning take us to the one who provides meaning. And Father, as we draw closer to you, may you answer the questions of our heart. May you draw us deeper to the meaning of life. Lord, may we find our satisfaction not in what we know, not in what we can experience or attain, but may we find our satisfaction in you, the author of life. And I pray, Lord, for the people who are here this morning. Maybe there's someone who has been wanting to know meaning and has been trying the same things that Solomon has tried. They're trying to figure everything out and understand as best as they can what life is about. But it's not empirically coming to them. They're still left with there's more, there's more. Maybe there are people here, Father, who have given themselves over to pleasure just wanting to have a good time because if I'm going to die, what's the point of living? Unless I just have fun, but it's still a vacuum. They're still craving meaning and the pleasure isn't satisfying it. Maybe they've attained a career or accumulated the things and they found out that this isn't enough. Lord, may they still ask. May they continue to seek. May they knock. 
may that pursuit lead them to you. And Father, may you satisfy the cravings of our soul. But Lord, with that satisfaction, there is still the desire to know you more. And so may we still crave and desire to know your meaning in our lives daily. I do pray these things in Jesus' name.